the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome once again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. We're so pleased that uh, you're with us today. And so is Pete Paquette. He's our engineer. Uh, He's happy. Andrew Herdliska, the producer of the show, he's happy. And I know our guest, Ray Comfort, is happy because he stays happy. His book is out. Why would anyone follow Jesus? Ray, welcome to Orlando. How are you, my friend? I'm happy. Thank you. Good, good. Uh, You open your book with a chapter called Jesus and Intellectual Arguments. Ray, what does that mean? Well, often people put up intellectual arguments. They don't believe in God's existence. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe the Bible, haven't opened it, or just have heard rumors about the Bible's changed and things like that. And so when I meet an intellectual, I realize something very important. That is, he has a will to live. We're living in a a very interesting time. We've had two very dark years, but two very good years for Christians. That is, unsaved people are thinking about their mortality like they've never thought about it before. All around them, people are dying. They're thinking about the fact of death, and they've got no answer. You know, when when a waitress walks into a restaurant and she sees some clients sit down at a table like businessmen, three piece suits, important-looking cases put up on the table. They're wheeling and dealing millions of dollars. She doesn't hesitate to butt into their conversation. She'll just walk up and say, can I take your order? Why does she do that? These are important businessmen. Well, she knows she has what they want. They're there to eat. And so she's bold. And you and I have what this world wants. Every single person who puts up, puts up an intellectual argument has one argument they can't argue against, and that's, in the, that's the appointment with death. Death is coming. Every beat of the heart is a drumbeat of their own funeral march. And so they're fearful of dying. So because we have what they want, they want to live more than anything else. It's a God-given eternity that God's put in their hearts. We must be bold. Jesus was bold with a woman at the well. He, he just says, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd ask him and he'd give you living water. And so boldness uh, is something that every Christian should possess. One, because we love unsaved people, and two, because we know they have, uh, we have what they want. But let me continue, if I may, uh, regarding intellectualism. When I meet someone uh, who professes to be an atheist, he thinks he's intellectual, I'll just say to him, so you're an atheist? He says, yes. I say, oh, well, I've got a question for you. Do you really believe the scientific impossibility that nothing created everything? And his little mouth will go like a road tunnel just for a second. He'll say, well, no, I don't believe that. There wasn't nothing that created everything. Obviously, it was something in the beginning. It just wasn't God. So I say, let's try and find out why 
you don't want it to be God. And you find that he's living with his gorgeous girlfriend, and he's getting great pleasure out of a pornographic addiction. And so his argument isn't moral, or is, sorry, it isn't intellectual, it's moral. He doesn't want to find God for the same reason a thief doesn't want to find a policeman. But as I said, we have what he wants, and so that's where you tap into his will to live. Ray Comfort is with us. He's in California. His new book is out, Why Would Anyone Follow Jesus? Topic number two for you, Ray, Jesus and Hope. What does that mean? Well, when you reject God, you reject hope. You have no hope in your death. My great joy as a Christian isn't that Jesus makes me happy, even though we are happy today because we're on the radio. Jesus doesn't promise happiness. He promises righteousness. The Bible says, riches profit not on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. So we have hope in Christ, what the Bible calls the living hope, in the same way a man who's got a parachute has hope that he'll be saved because he has a parachute. And his fear will be in direct proportion to his faith in the parachute. If he doesn't trust the parachute, he's going to have terrible fear. If he does, 100%, he's going to say, whoopee, I'm jumping, I'm going to land at 50 miles an hour on my feet, not 120 miles an hour on my face. And so we have hope in Christ in the face of death. I'm 72, 73 this year. I may not finish this interview, but I can't tell you what a joy it is to know that death has lost its thing. The Bible makes claims that are unbelievable and fantastic in the truest sense of the word. One is this. Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Either that's true or it isn't, and you can find out if it's true by obeying the gospel. If you didn't believe in electricity, you say, I can't see it, hear it, touch it, taste or smell it. I say, well, let electricity touch you. Take this fork and stick it up that live socket, and you would believe in electricity because of the power that's gone through your body. Well, the Bible says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. When, when God transforms your life, you become a new creature in Christ. You're born again, and that's your own personal miracle. And that's why your hope is a living hope in the face of death. Ray Comfort is with us. Ray, I want you to explain topic three. It's simply called Jesus and money. Yeah, well, the world serves money. It loves money. Jesus said you cannot serve God and man. And that's the two options. You either love God or you love money. Your hope is in God. Your hope is in, in money. Your future rests upon money or your future rests upon God. And, and, what I like to do is say to people, would you sell one of your eyes for a million dollars? And they say, oh, maybe. I say, would you sell both for a hundred million? And everybody is adamant. Absolutely not. I don't care if it's 200 million. I wouldn't give up my eyes for anything. I say, but your eyes are merely the windows of your soul. Your life looks out those windows. And Jesus said, you'd despise the value of your eyes compared to the value of your soul. He put it this way. Why shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And so the world values money and the peace it can give you, but that's nothing compared to what God gives you in Christ. And I look at men like Bill Gates and others who are godless and think they are paupers. They, say, they think they're rich, but they have nothing because you leave everything with you. Uh, sorry, you leave everything on this earth and take nothing with you when you die. And so we need to take to heart the words of Jesus Watch him at profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. 
Ray, tell us now about topic four. It's called Jesus and Exclusivity. What's that about? You're stretching me, Pat. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exclusivity uh, is, is, we can't get away from it. There's no wiggle room. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say a way, a truth, or a life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the source of life. He said, no one comes to the Father but by me. The Bible says, neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby they must be saved. The epistles say, whoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. Now, that's a hard thing to say to someone who's a Muslim. You don't want them to kill you, or a Hindu, or a Buddhist. But there is a way to put it where it makes sense. And the thing that brings sensibility to the whole issue of exclusivity is the moral law. If you look at Mark 10, verse 17, when the rich young ruler ran to Jesus, he knelt down and said, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus reproved him and said, There's none good. And then he said, You know the commandments. He gave him five of the Ten Commandments. Why is that? Well, the commandments show us what sin is. They actually show us we're criminals. And they tell us that God is a judge. He's the judge of the universe. He set aside a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness. So when you realize that you're a ju- that God's a judge and that you're a criminal in his eyes, anything you offer the judge of the universe isn't religious works, it's not good works. It's an attempt to bribe the judge of the universe. And if you look at the great religions of Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, etc., and I say great in the area of uh, the, the size of their religion, they've got little, literally billions, you'll realize that they are built on something called works righteousness. They really do think they can offer the creator of the universe something where he will grant them forgiveness of sins and let them live forever. Well, the law, the moral law, which tells us lust is adultery, hatred is murder, lying lips are abomination to the Lord, leave us guilty before the judge. And as I said, anything we offer God is an attempt to bribe the judge of the universe. And the Bible says the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. God will not be bribed. But because he's rich in mercy, he provided the payment himself. We can leave the courtroom on Judgment Day because Jesus paid our fine and full on that cross. So that's good news for the Muslim, for the Hindu, for the Buddhist, for the atheist. Whosoever will may come. You know, we use the word but to destroy so much. We say, yeah, I really believe that, but. And then we discount the gospel with the word but. But, if you look at Romans 6.20 through it, Romans 6.23, it says, the wages of sin is death. And then it says, but, and it's a positive but, but the, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So when we talk about the gospel being good news for humanity, we mean it's the ultimate news that God gives everlasting life to whosoever will may come. Ray Comfort is our guest. Ray, uh is just a absolute powerful, powerful force in the Christian world. And we're talking about his book, Why Would Anyone Follow Jesus? Well, Ray, it's time for topic number five, Jesus and the crazy world. What does that mean? What's that about? Well, the Bible says when we come to Christ, we receive a spirit of a sound mind. Uh, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. And I have no hesitation in saying this world is insane. 
Anyone who's not a Christian is insane. I'll tell you why. God is offering everlasting life as a free gift to humanity. I mean, what, what would you like a, a given a pleasure cruiser, a plane, a riches beyond words, diamonds, gold, silver? Or would you like the gift of everlasting life? There's no contest. Because everything material in this world is going to leave behind. It means nothing. It's vanity. It's like chasing the wind. But God's offering everlasting life, and so people say, oh, think about it. Or I, I think there's mistakes in the Bible. Look, there's only one big mistake in the Bible. That's where man rejected God. Don't make the same mistake. We're seeing the fruit of a nation that rejected God. We're a nation filled with tornadoes and earthquakes and floods and diseases and, and fires and, and, and horrible things that are happening because we have lost God's blessing. And yet we can have it back in Christ. We can be washed clean of our sins as a nation if we'll seek God and say, God, forgive us. We have sinned against you. We use your name and blasphemy. And I, I just counted 21 uh, blasphemies of the name of Jesus in the latest Batman movie. Uh, I read it online 21 times. They, they went out of their way to take the name that's above every name and use it in place of a four-letter filth word beginning with S. Why would they do that? They don't do it with Hitler's name. They don't do it with any other historical figure. Only the name of Jesus. He's the only one in history who has his name used as a cuss word. Well, Jesus told us in John 7, verse 7, he said, the world hates me because I testify of its deeds that they're evil. That's insane. This is God gives us everlasting life. Every pleasure we have comes because of God's kindness, and we use his name as a cuss word and reject his offer of everlasting life. That's insane. And when you come to Christ, you receive that spirit of a sound mind. God opens the understanding. You realize what a fool you were. For all those years, you served sin and death when God's offering everlasting life as a free gift. Ray Comfort is our guest. The book, Why Would Anyone Follow Jesus? Ray, explain to us the topic six, Jesus and authority. What's that mean? Well, never a man spoke like Jesus spoke. The Pharisees, officers of the temple, sent out men to arrest Jesus. And they came back after listening to him and said, never a man spoke like this man. Never a man said the this man said, that, that portion of Scripture thrills my heart. Because you look at the words of Jesus and, and realize what it must have been like to hear what he actually said to witness uh, uh, what he's saying. Like he said, marvel not of this, for the hour is coming, and all that are in their graves shall hear his voice. But speaking of his own voice, he's going to raise the dead. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. He said, I'm the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. And he that believes in me shall never never thirst. And so when you take the time to look at Jesus, you'll realize he spoke with authority. He spoke with authority over death. He raised the dead. He walked on water. He calmed the the storm. He fed the 5,000. Why? Because he was God in human form. Most, most people don't realize that. The Bible says God was manifest in the flesh. The Word that brought everything into being became flesh and dwelt amongst us, spoke to us, suffered and died for our sins, rose again on the third day, and now offers us everlasting life. So the Pharisees were sure right, the religious leaders, when they said, He speaks with authority, and He certainly does. 
Ray Comfort is the author of Why Would Anyone Follow Jesus? We have another segment with Ray. Stay with us right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Uh, We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Ray Comfort is our guest. The book, Why Would Anyone Follow Jesus? Ray, we've arrived at topic seven. Uh, It's simply called Jesus and His Accusers. Uh, What are you writing there? I haven't got a clue. I haven't read it. I'm bluffing. I have read it, actually. But it's a long time ago. I've written over 100 books, and sometimes you get a bit of confused. So just remind me of the chapter. Uh, chapter 7, Jesus and his accusers, you write. Uh, what What does that mean? What's that about? What do you, yes. want, what do you want to share it's, with it's, us? It's, it's coming back. Um, you know, if you spit into a hurricane, it's going to come back on you. And when people rail against God, they don't know what they're actually doing. When men stand on a pinnacle, as did uh, Mussolini in his youth, and say, God, if you're real, strike me dead, uh, don't come to the conclusion that God doesn't hear your prayer. Mussolini did get struck dead, and if you know anything about the death of Mussolini, you'll know that God did exceeding abundantly far above all that he asked or thought. And so men challenge God because in their minds they think he's the hairy guy on a cloud poking his finger at Adam's finger. He's nothing like what we imagine him to be. God is the creator of the universe. He dwells everywhere. He knows everything. He sees everything. Nothing is hid before his eyes. And when we say nothing is hid before his eyes, that means nothing is hid. For instance, the sun is 93 million miles from us. The earth fits in the volume of the sun a million times. Go with me in your imagination to the very center of the sun, to the very atom that is at the center of the sun. Cut it in half. Open it up and look at the center of the atom. God's already seen it. He knows all about it. He knows it intimately from every direction because he's the creator of that atom. He made the eyelashes on your eyes. He made the atoms that created your, that are in your eyeballs. Every thought you've ever had has been seen by God. And so what we must do as Christians before we come to Christ or in unsaved people is get rid of every idolatrous thought that we have about God. And by idolatrous, I mean it's a violation of the first and the second of the Ten Commandments to commit the sin of idolatry. Idolatry is creating a God in your own image, making up a God you feel comfortable with, a snugly, cuddly God, one that has no sense of justice, truth, or righteousness. The God of the Bible is the one that made thunder and lightning. He's the one that we must face on Judgment Day, and the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into his hands. You know, use those words, a fall into the hands of, and it has connotations. If you fall into the hands of the enemy, you're in great danger. If you fall into the hands of the police, you're in big trouble. And the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And I can say without any hesitation, I'd far rather fall onto the face of the sun than fall into the hands of a living God on Judgment Day. It's a fearful thing. Ray Comfort, explain to us topic eight. Jesus and the greatest sermon. What's that? What was it? Well, the greatest sermon, uh, arguably, no, not arguably, for sure, is the Sermon on the Mount. You see Jesus saying things that are absolutely mind blowing. 
He begins by going up onto a mountain, and the disciples follow him. He was just ministering to a crowd. Maybe he wanted to get intimate with the disciples and speak to them about things that really mattered, and he certainly did. He went through what we call the Beatitudes, and then he opened up the moral law. The Bible says of the Messiah, he would magnify the law and make it honorable. And so when Jesus quoted the moral law, the Ten Commandments, he gave us its spiritual nature, that God requires truth in the inward parts. For instance, he said, you've heard it said by them of old, you shall not commit adultery. And I remember the night of my conversion, saying to myself, well, if there's a judgment day, I'll be fine because I've never committed adultery. And then I read the words of Jesus. But I say to you, whoever looks upon a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. And it was like an arrow hit my chest when I realized that God saw my thought life and he considered lust to be adultery because I, like every red-blooded young male, was burning with unlawful sexual desire. What the law does, those commandments, what they do is they show us we're sinned and that we need a Savior. And they're the key that was used by Spurgeon, Wesley, Moody, Finney, Whitfield, all the greats down through the ages. They said, always open up the commandments before you preach the gospel, because people will never know they're sinners unless they're confronted with that moral law. Let's talk about Jesus and the lost, topic number nine. You know, every one of us should be horrified when we look around us. People are sitting in the shadow of death. When you sit somewhere, you're not going anywhere. The Bible says sinners are sitting in the shadow of death. It's a shadow hovering over them. Every day, 150,000 people are swallowed by death. That should horrify us beyond words. It certainly did Jesus. It drove him to the cross. He looked on the multitudes with great compassion. And the Bible says others saved with fear, having compassion, pulling them from the fire, hating the garments spotted by the flesh. So if we have no concern for lost, we need to be challenged by the words of Charles Spurgeon where he said, have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you're not saved yourself. Be sure of that. So if love dwells in our heart, we should not only be concerned for the unsaved, we should run to them and say, Jesus Christ has abolished death. Let me tell you something. And there's a key to overcoming the fear of man because most of us have trouble approaching people about the things of God. All you do is get to know someone, say, hi, what's your name? I did this with a guy yesterday. Is that our ministry working? And I said, hey, how you doing? He says, good. I said, what's your name? Sam. I said, Sam, I've got a question for you. Do you think there's an afterlife? And he said, yeah, I think so. I said, where are you going when you die? He says, I hope to go to heaven. I said, well, let's see. Let's go through the Ten Commandments. And I took him through that law, and he said, thank you for talking to me. So you and I can do this, and we're always, we always have love in our tone because love is the, found, the fountain that motivates us. Ray Comfort, I want you to cover Jesus and atheism. I'm eager to hear about this. Topic number 10. Well, we have a nation that's given itself to atheism, particularly among the youth. We've seen a great rise in the foolishness of atheism, that is believing that uh, nothing created everything. And the reason for this is we have a generation that has access to hardcore pornography in seconds on their phone. And so we have, they have temptations that we didn't have in our youth. When I was a kid, when I was 18 or 19, if I wanted to see a lusty picture, I had a friend go in and buy a magazine or a, 
you know, a newspaper that had a picture on the a girly on the back, and that was it. This generation are given to what's called gross darkness uh, in seconds. And so when you get into darkness, you're going to hate the light. The Bible says men love darkness more than light because their deeds are evil. But our agenda as Christians, to realize this, that God is going to bring every work to judgment, including every secret thing, and what we've got to do is turn the light on now. Sinners may realize that they're going to face God on day when the light comes on. Every secret sin they've ever committed uh, will come out as evidence of their guilt. And that's where the gospel comes in, of Christ dying on the cross so sinners can have their heart changed so that they'll love righteousness and hate iniquity. That's what happens when you become a Christian. You're born again with a new heart and new desires. Ray, I want you to talk about Jesus and his hard sayings. What are you telling us there? Yeah, never a man spoke like this man. He said things that were poetic, majestic, but he also said things that were horrific. For instance, he said this, If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's better to enter heaven without an eye than go to hell with both your eyes, where the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. He said things like this, Fear not him who has power to kill your body, and afterwards do no more. But fear him who has power to kill your body and cast your soul into hell. Fear him. He was talking about God. Now think about what he just said. He said, Fear not him who has power to kill your body. Man, if someone's coming at me with a machete or a knife or a gun, I'm going to be absolutely terrified. My heart's going to pound through my chest. Well, Jesus said, don't fear him. Fear him who has power to kill your body and cast your soul into hell. In other words, that scenario of someone coming at me with a knife to plunge it in my chest is nothing compared to the fear of falling into God's hands. Because he is angry at and He's angry at the wicked every day. The proof that he's angry is that he's given us the death sentence. The wages of sin is death. My guest, and he's always a good one, Ray Comfort, author of Why Would Anyone Follow Jesus? A lot to chew on in that book. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. It's the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, and we're always so happy when you join us. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. Ray Comfort, our guest in that first segment. Author of Why Would Anyone Follow Jesus? Well, Chase Replogle is with us. He's in Springfield, Missouri, pastor of Bent Oak Church. His book is called The Five Masculine Instincts, A Guide to Becoming a Better Man. I'm eager to uh, hear all about this, Chase. And first of all, welcome to Orlando, and uh, thanks for your time with us. Yeah, well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure for me to be able to join you. Uh, Chase, why was it important for you to write this book? Uh, well, I'm a pastor, first and foremost, uh, so I have men in my congregation, and I've watched over the last few years as this conversation, unfortunately, by our culture's uh, doing has become controversial. To say the word masculinity or manhood is to sort of immediately enter into debate, and I've seen the way that a lot of men 
trying to avoid that conflict have just kind of stopped talking about it. Even pastors feel reluctant to talk about what does it mean to be a man or a Christian man today because of the controversy. So I really felt like we needed a book, we needed a conversation that would help men continue growing in Christ-likeness, navigate some of the controversy that's around the topic today, and be able to set that aside for just something better, uh, developing a better Christian character and virtue. Well, let's get started. Chapter 1 is called Men Meet and the Masculine Malaise. What's all that mean? (laughs) Well, there's actually a lot of interesting studies about why men eat more meat than women. Men eat 57% more meat than women, more than the U.S. dietary guidelines recommend. If you're a man, you're 10 times more likely to kill an animal and eat it at some point in your life than a woman. If you're a man, you are 50% less likely to ever become a vegetarian or a vegan. The big question is why? Why do men? I think most men would say, yeah, I like meat, but why? And it's actually a really controversial conversation. There are some who say that it's all characters of masculinity portrayed in advertising to try to sell products, a kind of masculine cliche. There's some that think it's evolutionary and it's a part of our biology through evolution. There's some who tell men they should have a meat-only diet, a controversial diet known as the carnivore diet. And there are some who say that meat consumption is causing global warming and risking human human existence. So I make the point early in the book, there's this much controversy around what we eat as men. Well, what else is controversial about being a man today? And the answer is a lot. Um, And as I was saying before, I think what a lot of men are now experiencing is this idea of malaise, that something is off, something is not working, something is broken, but we're not quite sure how to move forward, not quite sure how to fix it. And so a lot of men are just dropping out. They're disengaging from that controversy and complexity. And we see it across all the stats. Men are participating in church less. They're dropping out of education and workplace. The dropping out of homes, the fatherlessness epidemic in our society is really the root cause of so many of our societal challenges. So this idea of malaise is, I think, really what a lot of men are experiencing right now. Uh, let's keep moving. Next topic, learning to recognize your instincts, you write, uh, Chase. Yeah, I I like this conversation of instincts because usually the conversation we have with men, and this is true of me as a pastor as well, too, is warning men about sins that men men are prone to. That's an important conversation. We should do that. But we should also be asking the question, why those particular sins? Um, Two men can both commit the same sin and do it out of different motives for different reasons. At some point, a part of growing in maturity, growing in our Christ-likeness, is really coming to understand why those things exist in our life. What are those desires, those impulses, those instincts that move us? C.S. Lewis defined an instinct as behavior as if from knowledge. In other words, we act imagining that it's rational and we've decided, when really there are things controlling us sometimes that we've not really questioned in our life. So that skill for men, how do I learn to recognize the things that are motivating me is a really important first step for understanding uh, how it is that I grow in character and grow in Christ-likeness. Now let's move on to topic number three, sarcasm, the humor of our age. What's that mean? This gets us into the five instincts specifically. The first of those instincts is sarcasm. I actually draw these from Shakespeare's stages of a man, and I pair each of Shakespeare's images with a word and a biblical character for recognizing it. Um, Shakespeare, I pair it with the story of Cain, who is uh, reluctant to learn the things that God is coming down and trying to instruct him. God, of course, rejects his sacrifice, which makes Cain frustrated, but God comes down and initiates a conversation. Cain has the opportunity to understand God better and grow and understand the kind of worship God wants. 
but he can't listen. He feels threatened by it. He rebels against God's authority. He murders his brother. And when God comes down and says to Cain, where's your brother? He cuts back with this sarcasm that we see very clearly as contempt. Am I my brother's keeper? There's a kind of man who has an instinct, a reluctance to learn, a reluctance to take things seriously, a reluctance to mature, because every, every lesson feels to them like a threat, a judgment. And so I think it's an instinct as men we have to really be on the lookout for, and, and Cain is a good warning about some of the consequences of it. Now, explain to us uh, topic four. You call it adventure, cultivating new eyes. Yeah, that's right. Adventure is the second of the instincts. And there's a cultural narrative right now that says, particularly to young men, if you want to know who you are, your true identity, you have to leave home and tradition and place, and you need to go find it. You need to go on an adventure that unlocks who you are, your identity, your sense of purpose. And I saw in that uh, very much Samson's story. Samson was born into the Nazarite battle, born into a time in Israel's period where they weren't really that successful. There wasn't an army. There wasn't a kingdom. There wasn't even really a unified temple. And he grew up finding himself instead infatuated with everything Philistine, the cities, the women, constantly pursuing it in these adventures, the conflict and love. Uh, but those perpetually ruin who Samson is. He loses his distinctiveness of his vows. He becomes less discerning and more dull in character. Um, there's certainly nothing sinful about an adventure, but if you indulge this idea of needing adventure to know who you are for identity, it has a tendency not to uh, enlighten you in the way you imagine, but actually to rob you of things commitment and place actually produce, which is that meaningful identity. We're chatting with Chase Ruplogal. He's the pastor of Bent Oak Church in Springfield, Missouri. His book, The Five Masculine Instincts, A Guide to Becoming a Better Man. Uh, Chase, we've landed at uh, topic number five. It's called Ambition, A Promised Land Lost. What do you write here? Uh, Ambition is the story of Moses, uh, the third instinct. Moses at times seems ambitious. Of course, he rises up and strikes down the Egyptian. Acts tells us that he did it because he thought the people would rally behind him. He would lead them. It's very much an ambitious moment of his life. Uh, But when that fails, when he's actually mocked by those two Hebrew slaves that he, he saved, who made you prince over us, he flees to the wilderness. And when God shows up in the burning bush some 40 years later, we imagine finally Moses is back into it, back onto that ambition. God's asking him to do the very thing. But instead, Moses finds himself reluctant. Um, I'm slow of speech, and they won't believe that you sent me. And can you send me help? He eventually asks God, can you just get someone else to do it? Ambition can motivate us in one moment to to really seek great change and to take on great tasks. But when we fall short, it's still ambition, this instinct of ambition that leaves us feeling beaten and disillusioned. Ambition has a tendency when it's not checked, when we don't leave room for God, it can outpace what God is doing. Ambition can cause us to judge ourselves and the people around us and God as well by how well we're fulfilling that thing we imagine achieving. So certainly I'm not suggesting we need a generation of ambitionless men, uh, but we need to be aware that ambition, the way I write in the book, is like a, a, a poison that a wise, skilled doctor can actually use as medicine for healing, but to somebody unwise and unskilled can just as quickly kill. Ambition is a good thing, but if not kept in its proper place, can actually lead us into disobedience, which is the case in Moses' life. He ends up disobeying God and losing that ability to enter the promised land with the people. Now, Chase, it's time to talk about topic number six, reputation. 
The image of a king. What's that mean? Well, reputation is one of my favorite of Shakespeare's descriptions. He says, by this stage of man, the man begins to dress as is expected of him, to cut his beard in the proper way. Uh, Shakespeare even says the man starts to put a little bit of extra weight on. Uh, this is the stage of life where we've achieved something, maybe a business goal, maybe a financial goal, and all of a sudden we start caring a lot about protecting it, about protecting our reputation, this respectability that we've earned. Uh, I use the story of David to look at that, because in so many ways, Saul and David's story is really a struggle for reconciling who they actually are in all of its complexity with this image of God's king that, in Saul's case, gets thrust on him and really becomes his undoing. He unravels under that pressure. And in David's life, is this real tension. That moment he gets it right, takes off Saul's armor and faces Goliath and the honesty of who he is, a shepherd with God in his defense. But at other moments, David fails really spectacularly. I mean, his sin with Bathsheba was great, but it's the murder of Uriah to cover up the sin that really makes it so much worse. And, and that sin plays out even in the lives of David's children. It takes a prophet to come before David and point at that prophetic finger and expose David's duplicity. So there is a—the New Testament recommends that as believers we care about our reputation. It's a qualification of leadership to have a good reputation. But an overindulgence in protecting your reputation can actually be the thing that keeps you from true confession, from real in, in, integrity. And so from David's life, we learn this example of what it means to, to be honest about everything that's within us. Uh, folks, we're chatting with the author Chase Replogle, uh, The Five Masculine Instincts, A Guide to Becoming a Better Man. Uh, Chase, let's dive into topic seven. It's simply called apathy, a world too wide. What, what's that about? Well, that phrase, a world too wide, actually comes specifically from Shakespeare's images. He describes this stage of man as uh, he's more often in his slippers. He's around the house. He says that his voice begins to fade with age. It's symbolic of his engagement with the world. And he uses this phrase, Shakespeare does, the world has become too wide. For many men, we recognize that in our youth, we feel capable, we can make change, we can achieve things. But as time goes by, we become more and more aware of how little control we actually have over the world, um, how complicated relationships can be. And so there is a tendency as men to begin disengaging from those complexities, to retreat back into just the things we can control, hobbies, the comfort of our own home, uh, fewer and fewer relationships as we age. I use the story of Abraham to look at this instinct, which may be a little surprising. We think of Abraham as this uh, leader of faith. He leaves home and follows God, not knowing where he's going. I mean, certainly that's anything but apathy. But when things do go wrong in Abraham's life, it tends to be his inability to meet the complexity of the moment. Uh, whenever he's waiting for an heir and his wife finally comes up with this plan to produce one through Hagar, their servant, it goes terribly wrong and creates division and conflict in the home. And Abraham says to Sarah, you deal with it. Uh, he just can't bring himself to engage it. And so Sarah begins mistreating uh, Hagar, and Hagar and Ishmael are forced to flee into the wilderness. That actually happens a few times in Abraham's story. And in the very end, I think when God uh, calls Abraham in tw chapter 22 of Genesis, it says he tested Abraham. I think a big part of what he was doing at the end of Abraham's life, when Abraham had everything he had long waited for fulfilled, was God was forcing him back into a position of faith. A challenge to all of us that we have to keep faith alive, even as life gets complicated and we feel that instinct to disengage from it. 
Now, Chase, let's get to uh, topic number eight, the real work ahead. Explain that to us. What's that mean? Well, I write in this chapter that uh, at the end of the day, maybe you don't think any of these instincts apply to you, or maybe you think I'm crazy for using Shakespeare and what does Shakespeare know? Uh, There really is a sort of underlying theme beneath those chapters we just went through, and that's Paul's advice to the young man, Timothy. When Paul writes in 1 Timothy, it's an interesting letter because unlike Paul's other letters where he may be writing to a whole church, uh, the Romans, who he's not even met, or Corinth, the whole congregation, when he writes to Timothy, he's writing to a single individual that he knows very well. And Timothy's facing a a really difficult challenge. Uh, Leading in Ephesus is, is a hard place. There's division, there's false teachers. And he says to Timothy, you need to show the progress that you're making. And he sums up all of his advice in chapter 4 by saying, you'll do that by keeping a close watch on your life and a close watch on the teaching. And by this, you'll save yourself and your hearers. In other words, you'll be a good pastor. You'll bear responsibility for the task given to you. That idea of learning to watch your life closely, which I associate with understanding motives and instincts, what's happening inside of you, and also understanding the teaching, the doctrine, the gospel that you've received, That becomes the really important steps necessary for growing, for making progress, for cultivating Christ-like character in our life. And too often we tend to do one or the other, just paying attention to our emotions, our feelings, just learning Scripture as if it's some abstract truth, not working it down into our actual motives in life. And so for readers, I hope, even if maybe you don't find yourself in those five instincts, although I think you will, I hope you're learning this skill of how do I pay close attention to my life? How do I pay close attention to what I have in Christ? And how do I bring those two things together in such a way that the real work ahead is really growing in Christ-likeness and growing in a kind of Christian character that can bear greater responsibility in the places I'm needed, my home, the church I'm a part of, the community that I'm in. Chase Replogle is our guest, Springfield, Missouri. That's where he is. The book, The Five Masculine Instincts. We have another segment with Chase. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We will be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Chase Replogel uh, is the pastor of Bent Oak Church in Springfield, Missouri. We're talking about his book, The Five Masculine Instincts, A Guide to Becoming a Better Man. Uh, chapter 9, Chase, uh, Nothing Left to Prove. That comes at the end of the book. Uh, what are you writing there? The book hints back towards uh, how the book begins, and that's by recognizing that There are a lot of external pressures and expectations on men. Uh, We live in a moment where there's sort of two cultural narratives taking place. One cultural narrative is saying to men that traditional forms of masculinity are toxic, they need to be deconstructed for a new era. And there's been a kind of opposite reaction to that that says, no, 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 your raw masculine instincts are salvation, salvific. They need to be indulged with a kind of wild abandon. And we're caught in a cultural moment where a lot of the controversy around masculinity has to do with men taking sides in this cultural debate. It has to do with them proving those sides that they're on. Uh, So often the way that we talk about masculinity, even within the Church, slips, unfortunately, into some of these cultural cliches or the language the culture is using in these conflicts. And so I try to say to men at the end of the book, 
the, that's not our task as Christian men, to prove ourselves to the world's standards, to rise or fight the battles that culture is putting before us. Certainly we engage those things. Sometimes it's necessary just because this is the world we live in. But we can't take our eye off the ball of recognizing that the real task before us is growing in Christ-likeness. But at the end of the day, that's the thing when we stand uh, before Him in heaven, we'll be asked about. Uh, we'll be a good and faithful servant if we do this task, if we grow as disciples and we bring along others, discipling them as well, too. And so I hope for men who read the book, one of the things they're taking away from it is it is possible to grow in character. This isn't a hopeless or a lost cause for men. I hope they also take away that it's needed. We need men who are becoming like Christ, who are willing to step up and bear responsibility in the home, in congregations, in the communities around them, and that uh, the attention that the world is giving to the debate around masculinity isn't the way that we're going to do that. It really is going to come from what we previously talked about, learning to understand my motives, my instincts, learning what I have in Christ through the gospel, and using those two things to grow in Christ-likeness and Christian character. Chase, I'm intrigued with the, your use of Shakespeare. Uh, where, where did you become a Shakespeare fan, and where, where does he fit in your life? Yeah, well, I, I can't say I'm a Shakespeare expert, so I want to be careful on that. But Shakespeare is, of course, known as uh, one of the kind of psychological writers. He's trying to unpack human nature. Uh, Shakespeare is also obviously deeply aware of the biblical narratives, uh, but his work is trying to unpack what are human motives, what are human desires? How do those motives and desires play out in the narratives that he's writing, but those narratives often being uh, just the way that we live as human beings? So Shakespeare's stages of a man have been around for a long time. Um, they're fairly well known. But for me, they became in many ways a tool, a tool for recognizing through Shakespeare's work in human nature, what is some of the human nature that we experience as men? And one of the challenges is sometimes as pastors as well, too, we can look at men as if they were one thing, right? A men's ministry, you know, this is the work we're doing for men. And the reality is men can be very different by age. Uh, the motives and the instincts within you as a 20-year-old man can be very different than those in you as a 70-year-old man. But also because of life experience, we can have one moment of great ambition where we're motivated by that instinct, and then maybe by failure, slip even in young age into a, a season of apathy and disengagement because of them. So I think Shakespeare understood really well that uh, instincts, these desires, these narratives by which we live, or as he puts it, the parts we play, right, the roles we take on as men, really are at the bottom of how we behave and how we act. Chase Replogle. Chase, what do you want uh, us to take as listeners and readers? Uh, what do you want us to take from your book and apply to our lives? What's, what's the bottom line here? Well, I hope what the book does, <clears throat> excuse me, is I hope it gives men language for describing things that have been going on in their life that maybe they haven't noticed nor had the language to talk about before. Um, often what a good book does, I think of books like uh, The Five Love Languages, maybe we can make a comparison. It gave couples common language for describing what they need and, and how they were feeling. And I hope this book does something like that. I hope it allows men who may be in similar stages to share those experiences along with the biblical character and have language for discussing it. But also I hope it's a tool for uh, men who may be later in some of these stages, who remember what some of these earlier stages were in life, to be able to talk about those with young men. It becomes a way of building bridges and sharing experience and lessons and recognizing these instincts, again, as a way of then using them to apply the gospel and grow in character and Christ-likeness. Chase, tell us about your church, Meadow Church in Springfield, Missouri. 
Yeah, I'd be happy to do it. I, uh, I'm sort of, I like to think of it as a pastor's pastor. I, uh, uh, I'm no celebrity. I'm no megachurch pastor. I've got a congregation of about 100 people. It's a very relational congregation. And I've been pastoring there for about 10 years. And so much of this book specifically, it really does flow out of that pastoral work. Um, I'm a man myself, uh, have a brother. Uh, my dad was a police officer, a state trooper for years. My brother in the Marine Corps, I became a pastor. I have a son now, but I also have a congregation full of men. And so this, this topic for me wasn't just a topic I thought, you know, I'm going to write a book because I find it interesting. I wrote this book because I've seen the way men in my congregation, my own family, have wrestled with these questions and wanted to uh, help them find a way forward through the gospel, through the stories that we have in Scripture, those companions into a better Christ-likeness. Chase, how did you come up with five masculine instincts? Are there more? Are there some that, do you, uh, that were not included? Yeah, it's a good question because it lets me speak a little bit broadly about the instincts as well, too. I took the five from Shakespeare, so that's kind of where I got the number from. But um, I do say they're certainly not the only instincts. Um, these instincts are probably present in women as well, although these tend to be ones that I, by experience, have seen prominent in men, and I hear that from people who read the book. But certainly there are other instincts that may be motivating you. Um, I also always try to point out these instincts are not necessarily expectations. It's not as if you have to have these five instincts to be a man, nor are these instincts the five sins of men. I mean, there's good parts of adventure and ambition and reputation. Uh, there's certainly even seasons for apathy, a kind of disengagement for rest and renewal. Uh, but these are the, the instincts that if we are not paying close attention as men tend to show up in our lives, tend to control our behavior and our actions without us realizing it, tend to lead us into sin and destruction sometimes if we're not aware of them. So at the end of the day, I do think they're a, a tool for asking questions about our, our lives, trying to better understand our motives. And uh, if you come up with a few instincts of your own or if you find another list and maybe think some of those apply, I think that's great. Um, it still gets us back to that advice Paul gave to the young man, Timothy. How do I pay close attention to my life? How do I use that attention to apply and work the things of the gospel deeper into my own heart? Chase, in closing, let, let me run these five right back at you for a final comment. Sarcasm, adventure, ambition, reputation, apathy. Have we covered it? You've got them. Yeah, those are them. So I would say to listeners, if you're a man, maybe think about what might be going on in your life. I've got an assessment on my website, the5masculineinstincts.com. There's a quiz. You could maybe check some of those and see. Uh, but also, maybe if you're a mother listening, maybe you have a husband or sons or a grandmother with grandsons, uh, I hope the book's a, a help to you, too, to maybe understand what it is going on beneath the surface and the men in your, your life that you care about, and then maybe a way of even initiating some conversations with them as well, too, about what those motives are. You've got them right. Sarcasm, adventure, ambition, reputation, and apathy. Do you have a follow-up to this book, do you think? Well, I hope so. I enjoy writing. Uh, I've definitely got some thoughts about things to come next. But uh, right now I'm really focused on trying to get this book in as many uh, hands of men and church leaders as possible and, and uh, really focused on however I can be helpful to those church leaders, to men who may be leading small groups or men's ministries, uh, however the book can benefit them. That's really where my focus is at the moment. Chase Replogal uh, has been our guest. Um, we've got to wrap up after this. Stay with us. But I do want to remind you that we're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, and you can be a big help. Go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com, orlandodreamers.com, and just check in. Uh, just tell us a uh, great idea. I think Orlando is ready to be a big league baseball city. 
I'd like to be part of this. Uh, I'd like uh, season tickets down the road if this all works out. Uh, OrlandoDreamers.com. Uh, and, and I also want to remind you that my latest book is out. It's called Every Day is Game Day. It's a 365-day devotional. Uh, every, every devotional is a sports story, a sports theme, and then uh, segues into the spiritual lesson that goes with it. Uh, my friend Mark Atterbury wrote the book with me. Uh, so while you're up there ordering The Five Masculine Instincts by Chase Replogle, uh, get the book. Every day is game day. I think you'll be blessed. Well, we've got to wrap up here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. We will be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Well, thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. In that first segment, Ray Comfort uh, talking about his book, Why Would Anyone Follow Jesus? And boy, it's exciting always to talk to Ray. And then Chase Replogel came along from uh, Springfield, Missouri, Bent Oak Church, and we talked about his new book, the Five Masculine Instincts, A Guide to Becoming a Better Man. Well, we're always very pleased when you join us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And just a reminder, you're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. And I encourage you to stay tuned all day long uh, to those call letters. You'll be a better person for it. We will return next weekend for more here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And again, this is the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Have a wonderful week ahead, and God bless you. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time, where faith comes by hearing. The new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.